Hello friends, welcome to Running and Fitness with Raj. This show will bring you exciting and interesting guests and give you specific and actionable advice on your running, fitness and general health. Our guest today is the peerless Paula Radcliffe. Uh, Paula is one of the true legends of athletics and a fantastic ambassador to sports in general and is uh, one of the long and most sought after guests of our podcast. So I'm absolutely delighted to have her on. Her achievements are frankly too, uh, too innumerable to recount fully. But just to give you a perspective, she held uh, one of the longest standing athletics world records. And this was in the marathon, which is still the second fastest time in history. She's a three-time winner of both the London and uh, New York marathons and a winner at the Chicago Marathon. Paula was the BBC Sports Personality of the Year, the IAAF World Athlete of the Year, the AIMS World Athlete of the Year three times, and she's also a member of the Order of the British Empire. These days, uh, Paula is very actively involved in promoting health and fitness through her involvement in various organizations and forums. Uh, needless to say, it's our absolute privilege to have you, Paula, and uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Okay, Paula, I would uh, start with uh, my first question, which is on your early influences in your running, and especially given that you suffered from asthma from a very young age, and uh, despite that, uh, I think you started running at an age of seven years or so. So tell us a bit of uh, these early influences and also how you coped up with asthma and still got into running and athletics more generally. Okay, um, well, I think first to clarify, I'm fortunate my asthma is not, it's not serious, it's exercise-induced asthma. Okay. Um, it was diagnosed when I was about 14, um, okay. so I was already running for a while by then. Okay. Um, it coincided, so I'd started running just because I enjoyed it. I liked running at school um, and a few competitions we had there. My dad was running the London Marathon, a couple of Liverpool marathons, and I would join in with him at the weekend. And I just liked the way that I felt when I was running. And so he helped me to join an athletics club when I was nine. And I joined the local club and um, started out a little bit of everything, some high jump, some long jump, some um, distance running, and it was distance running and cross country that I really, really enjoyed. And then when I was 11, we moved from Cheshire down to Bedford um, and it was an area where there was a lot more uh, oilseed rape grown and that's actually one of the triggers for, for my asthma. Um, so I think that plus the fact that I was just naturally starting to, to do a little bit more sports, um, running in the streets in the town at night, um, just brought or started bringing on asthma attacks. I didn't know what it was at first. Um, and I was very fortunate, again, to have an excellent family GP who diagnosed my asthma, said, look, it's not going to stop you doing your sport. You're just going to have to learn to manage it. You're just going to have to learn to, to measure it properly and know which are your triggers and to take the inhalers. Um, and then you will be able to, to carry on doing things. Um, so I was very grateful for that. It meant I didn't have to give up something that I loved doing. I just had to, to manage things around it. And I learned that certain things like changes in temperature, um, certainly heavy pollution, cigarette smoke, and then the pollens do trigger off um, my asthma. So I needed to make sure that I traveled with a peak flow monitor and to increase my inhaler accordingly. Plus things like a head cold would just mean that I'd be far more likely to develop bronchitis or even pneumonia worst case if I ignored it. So it was just do not run 
with that, it, it, let your body get better first and then get back into training. So it was just learning, really managing um, that. And I think there are actually sadly more and more children now being diagnosed with asthma, um, probably linked to levels of pollution everywhere. Um, but it is something that we all have to manage. And one of the messages that I really try to pass on to young children is that you don't, doesn't mean you can't do sport. You just have to control your asthma rather than let it dictate what you can and can't do with your life. No, it's it's so uh, so absolutely essential and inspiring to you know hear hear you and as you absolutely hit the nail on the head and especially where you know uh, I come from and a lot of our listeners come from, which is in India, mm-hmm. which has many cities which are really really badly polluted uh, throughout the throughout the year and still people have to get out you know go about their daily lives obviously exercise. Um, run and and all of that, uh, so it's it's really really inspiring to to hear you, you know, speak about it and you know how you how you how you managed although you know the location may have been uh, may have been different. So uh, this move to Bedford also coincided with you uh, getting a coach in Alex Stanton and he also had a big influence on your career, right? So can you just uh, because he also stayed with you even yeah. after you turned professional. Uh, just talk to us a little bit about that uh, relationship and wh- Absolutely. How, how you work together with him. I mean, again, a huge thank you to my dad, uh, who did a lot of research. We moved for his job. He did a lot of research in the area that we were moving to and found Bedford and County, found Alex and his wife, Rosemary, who were in charge of the girls group at Bedford and County. They actually still in charge, still coach there now, even though they're in their 80s. Um, and um, I found Alec. Alec um, took me in with the, the rest of the group and I think just an extremely wise, talented coach, but a, a lovely, genuine man as well. And he brought us through concentrating first on making sure that we all got our studies. Um, we did well in our schoolwork um, and also built a team. And the focus then was on very much the team rather than the individual growing up, which was great because it meant that there wasn't too much pressure on us. We were winning national team titles, but there wasn't all the pressure on one girl. It was a a group of girls and it was a group of friendship. And what I think worked best with Alec was the fact that he really tailors the coaching to suit the individual athletes. So he would be, I would go around on a Sunday evening and he would have all the pieces of paper dotted all over his lounge floor and he would be working out the training schedules for each individual, um, depending on what worked best for them and what their main goals and targets were and how they responded to training. And I think that's very, very key. Okay. And uh, uh, at what point uh, did you decide to turn professional? Because I, I remember seeing a quote from you, you know, probably when you had turned senior that you were just happy running and not necessarily wanting to turn professional. But obviously that changed at uh, some point. So well, how, I don't how think was it? Yeah. In athletics, I don't think that there is really a, a turning of professional. Um, for me, it, it's still a hobby. It's gone now back, obviously, to completely a hobby. And there was I was very lucky. There was a period of time where I could also make a living from it. But it was still my hobby and it was still something that I enjoyed doing. Um, And that's why I think I I was very fortunate. Athletics is a very gender equal sport. Um, Women are paid exactly the same as men, maybe sometimes more, depending on market values uh, and things like that. And um, I was able to progress 
in a lucky way, I guess, in that I won the World Junior Cross Country uh, title in 1992, which was the year that I was going to, to graduate from school to go away to university. Um, so essentially for me, that was a huge motivation in, okay, I'm, I can win the, the World Junior title. Maybe I can work towards winning the senior title. I've got four years at university where I'll also be studying and I'll have time to train. And then after that, I can maybe give myself a little bit of time before I kind of go into the world of work to see if I can make it my living for a little while with athletics. And I, I was able to do that. So um, I guess in contrast to a lot of my peers, I was kind of able to almost fund my way, my own way through university as well. And then certainly um, kind of make a career after it. But it really was just kind of a continuation of, of my hobby. I was just lucky that I was able to make that career from it. Okay. Oh, that's that's great to hear. And uh, tell us a little bit of uh, Paula Radcliffe's mental makeup. I mean, in the sense, uh, were you a generally confident athlete going into races or were you more like a mix of quiet confidence, but, uh, you know, mingled with some anxiety? What sort of an athlete, uh, athlete were you and how did you conquer, you know, like, I guess uh, all all athletes have, especially at that at the level you operated in, uh, certain anxieties and all of that, right? Or were yeah. you just a super confident individual? No, I think it's um, I think it's a very complex mix, and it's it's very hard to pick out one thing that makes somebody confident or not. Because um, I think I was I was a very shy child. Um, and certainly through my sport, I became more outgoing um, and I became more confident in myself and sport would transfer over into other areas. So I'm convinced that I did better in my exams and at school because of my sport, because it, it helped me to, to learn things about myself, learn time management and learn how to get the best out of myself there. And I'm certain that racing confidence comes from preparation. So when you know that you've done the training, then, as you said, it's, a, I think, far more a quiet confidence. I think distance running tends to trend more towards that quiet confidence anyway. Um, we don't need to have the kind of ego shouting and, and battles that you do for the shorter distances because there's enough time out there in the competition to, to battle it out and to, to play to your strengths. And, as well and, as for things to go wrong as well. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah but it's, it's all things that are in your control. And I think the biggest thing for me is re retaining the bottom line emotion that it's basically it's meant to be fun. It, it's meant to be enjoyment. So yes, some nerves are good because nerves mean it matters to you. And they also help you to get the best out of yourself. And too much anxiety stops it being fun. Um, and that kind of destroys the purpose. So I think also remembering that no matter whether it's the Olympic Games or whatever level, it is still just sport. It's not life and death. And kind of just keeping that sense of perspective, I think, helps the, the stress side of it not to become too much and retain the, the fun and the enjoyment element. So very early on, I think my dad, particularly my grandma also, used to say to me, you can only do your best and you can't do more than that. You can only control what you can control and you can do your best. And then you walk away from that happy and you found out how good you can be. So that I think is, is a good kind of starting point and balancing point to, to stay true to. Okay, so just as a follow-up question to that, I mean, how did you deal with, uh, let's say, bad days or some races in which you may not necessarily have had the best preparation in, in your mind? 
uh, you you always felt probably in those phases you could have done a little better in the training and maybe because of injury or what have you uh, so how you, how did you deal with uh, those kind of uh, situations including ones which are happening in an actual race when you are probably feeling a little too fatigued or you you have some setback how how did you deal did you have some mantras or Um, yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing to accept, particularly in something like the marathon, is that there are times, there are always times, no matter how fit you are and how on top of your game you are, there are always times that are very tough and you really have to concentrate on your mantras, on just kind of basically just staying very simple, concentrating on what you need to concentrate on and just thinking the basics, one foot in front of the other and just keep going and trusting that you will kind of come out the other side and feel more in control again. Um, and then there are the situations when you build up to a race and you haven't been able to prepare fully because of injury or illness and you know you're not 100%. And then I always think, well, you've actually kind of take the pressure off yourself a little bit. You can't expect miracles. Sure. You can't expect to perform if you have been injured. So just go and do your best again. And those ones are actually easier to explain than the ones where for some reason it just doesn't go well during the race, but the training did go well. They're okay. far harder to kind of learn the lessons from. Um, and sometimes it's a tactical error. Sometimes there just isn't an explanation. And then I think, again, it is just being able to, and it's very hard to do, but just being able to take a step back and say, okay, sense of perspective. It's not life and death. It's one race. There'll be other races. Put that one behind me. Be annoyed about it. Be cross about it. Be upset about it, but move on from it and not kind of stay bitter about it. Um, I think that really really helps um there is always another race uh there's always something else to move on from and even at the end of my career if i look back rather than focus on the ones that didn't work out i would far rather focus on the ones that did and the ones that went as well as or better than my expectations um because they're the ones that stay with you uh, and you maybe learn more from the difficult times and the bad times but some of them you just have to accept suck it up and and move on from them Okay. And within that race also, especially in a distance like the marathon, were you one of those athletes who used to focus a mile or even shorter segments at a time uh, and not really look at the whole picture? I mean, how, I think how, how, it's important to try and have a couple of levels of, of concentration going on. Um, okay. So you always have to be thinking about the whole thing because the marathon is about the 26.2 miles and you have to judge your effort perfectly and that's one of the skills of marathon racing is knowing and recognizing because you've been there in training and in competition what it feels like to be going as hard as you can and be able to sustain it to the end without going too hard too soon so you have to learn to manage that and you have to be open to, to kind of all of the information that helps you manage that perfectly over the whole distance. At the same time, you don't want to be worrying about what's happening in 10 miles when you're sure. only at five miles. You want to be thinking about that mile segment. So, yes, I would um, have certain techniques. I just used to count in my head um, and I would count up to 100. Three times was a mile. So I was actually breaking the mile down into even smaller segments um, and uh, very basic, just thinking about what number came next. So one foot in front of the other. It wasn't in time with my cadence. It was just a rhythm in my head that just helped me maintain concentration. So that was there on one level, but on the other level, you have to be thinking about the long-term strategy. And then on another level, you have to be taking in your surroundings, what's happening weather-wise, where the wind's coming from, running the tangents, what your opponents are doing, what they look and sound like, because that helps you to 
then modify tactics. Sure. If I can sense that somebody sounds like they're struggling, it sounds cruel, but you're actually, you're going to put up the effort then and try and make a little bit of a surge if it feels like you can win the race at that point. Got it. Okay. Now, sticking to the uh, sticking to the marathon itself, uh, you know, you you really took to it in the sense that in your debut race, which you won in London, you nearly broke the world record. It was the second fastest time at that time, and you were off the world record by just eight seconds. And then in pretty short order, like later that year, you broke the world record, which you again, you know, improved upon, uh, which is which has been this very very long standing record. In your mind, uh, obviously, you had a fantastic uh, shorter distance career leading up to the marathon. Uh, but in your mind, like, uh, uh, did, were you surprised by the kind of success you got in the marathon? Uh, uh, the the way you, and the way you kind um, of took to it at the time, I think I was. Yes, I mean, I obviously cross country was my first love, and then I moved to to 3,000 metres first, then 5,000 metres, 10,000 metres on the track. And then I raced some half marathons, won the half marathon championships. And it had always been a long-term plan of us to move to the marathon. Alec and I had always thought I would be suited to it, given the the similarities with cross-country, with learning to manage your body and manage your effort accordingly and know your body well. And I think just also my mental temperament, I welcome the challenge of it. But at the same time, I think I was very aware that it's not about on paper, it's about how you actually perform out there. So all the physiologists could tell me on paper I was going to be a good marathon runner. I still needed to try one to see if AI liked it and to see if I was good at it. So that first one, I think there was a huge sense of excitement going into it and also a little bit of a sense of not really anything to lose. I can kind of experiment with it a little bit because it's my first one. Um, but we were very well prepared for it. Sure. And from the minute it started, I loved it. Um, I just felt like I found my event. Uh, and I think for lots of reasons, I think it suited my mentality. I love the fact that it's not just you against the other athletes. It's you against the distance. It's you against your own mind and your own body. Uh, and there's a lot of different strategies that can come into play, a lot of challenges, a lot of thinking time. Uh, and I like that. Um, so I do think that it really suited me. And then physiologically, it suited me as well. I think my body for a period of time was very, very good at absorbing huge amounts of training and at pushing itself and kind of holding that red line, if you like, uh, of maximum effort for as long as possible. Um, and it was a challenge I enjoyed doing. So that's why I think I, I was suited to the marathon. I think possibly looking back, well, definitely, I probably had a shorter career because I ran them all hard. Yep. But I don't regret that at all because I wanted to see, one of my goals was I wanted to see how fast I could run. And I can genuinely say, I probably got pretty much as fast as I could go. I might have got a few seconds on a better course, different day, different weather conditions, something like that. But I pretty much got my maximum potential, I think, at the time. No, and as <clears throat> fans, fans, we are really, really thankful that you ran, you, you ran your races the way way you did, and you know, give us this. Uh, give, give, give us these uh, memories, which is, uh, you know, forever. So this actually, you just touched upon it. And it's a question which I wanted to ask you. So one of the interviews which I did very recently was with uh, Professor Andrew Jones, with whom mm-hmm. uh, you have you have worked. And I, I'm probably uh, not putting it in his words exactly. But the, what he was basically trying to say is uh, athlete like yourself, who are like these super elites, uh, could suffer pain 
more than pretty much anybody else uh, even when you go through periods of you know high fatigue and things uh, things like that now pain is very subjective we all know that so can you uh, tell us uh, your thoughts on this and how did you deal with parts of the race when it genuinely becomes acutely uncomfortable um i think um i think it is it's actually very complex i think there are probably a number of again different levels um there is first of all your natural pain threshold and there i think i'm actually fortunate but it could also sometimes be a bit of a problem and a hindrance but my natural pain threshold is very high my son's is actually the same um so sometimes i could cut myself and not notice that i've cut myself until i put soap or vinegar or something in it and then i realize that i've cut myself um so that could be dangerous also in terms of running through injuries for too long so they became more serious because i didn't stop when i first felt pain because i didn't really feel the pain um so that I think is a very subjective thing that just varies person to person. And then I think within sport, there is also the ability to tune out and to kind of have that mental strength to damp down certain pain. But then you have to recognize what's what's good as well. So I, um, to put it into context a little bit, in, in, the, in the Athens Olympics, I, I stopped. I couldn't keep going anymore. Um, something would just not allow me to continue. I kept going to the side of the road, but at that point I couldn't push on. I wouldn't have said it was pain. Um, it was more just not having the energy to, to be able to keep going. I mean, I think complex wise, I, I probably hit the wall, but at the same time, my mom was really happy there because she had seen me push on through lots of other things. And she was worried that had I pushed on through that, it may actually have been dangerous. Um, sure. And so I was kind of reassured by the fact that, okay, when it is something really serious, I can stop and I do stop and I it won't push through it. It was also a warm race, right? I mean, it was a warm It was, but I don't think that actually had any relevance to, to sure. what happened to me. It was, um, I think, more the injury and the bad reaction, the adverse reaction to the anti-inflammatories and the treatment for the injury, which meant that I wasn't absorbing glycogen at all. So essentially, my food was just passing through undigested. So I had no energy in the race so i did actually hit the proper marathon wall um but i think that is obviously something that i learned that i couldn't push through a lot of things like just the general pain that comes um from pushing your body i actually kind of welcomed that and maybe in some perverse way i liked the battle with that of being able to try and kind of ignore that for as long as possible until you actually are forced to to have to slow down um or or stop um but i like to try and kind of push that even in training as well and i think that was almost a kind of mental training for the race to kind of push yourself through that barrier in training to then be able to do it in the race and it's it's what all athletes do okay so uh one question uh, another and one question more on the on the marathon and the uh, and your world record and this i actually looked up in preparing for this interview between the time you set it and it got broken 16 and a half years later the men's marathon world record changed seven times right and the women's one just uh, stood although there was tremendous progress just below the you know the your world record time in terms of the timings getting improving in, in most of the world marathons world majors and uh, and uh, and all of that where do you see that uh, the whole trend now uh, now going um well i think on the women's side it's slightly different um from the men maybe just because the depth 
isn't quite there as much. Um, okay. Maybe also, I'm going to put it out there, maybe women are more able to push themselves to that limit. Okay. Um, then the men tend to, even the world records that we've had tend to have happened with more than one person running together, sure. not one person just pushing themselves on their own. It may just be because the amount of time that the men's marathon has been going versus the women's marathon. But even if you go back historically, so before me, um, it did change hands a couple of times in quick succession. But before that, Ingrid Christensen held it for 13 years. Yep. So from 1985 uh, until it was broken by Tegla LaRue, she she held that record. So there is kind of history on the women's side for it to be one person, kind of push the boundaries out a little bit and then it to, to stay for a while. I think um, a number of things came together when I, I ran the 215. The fact that I was a British athlete in the form of my life, at the peak of my career, in the London Marathon, um, all of that helped. I'm sure not sure that I would have run as fast on another course than London or even on that London course had it not had the London crowd um, and the history and everything that it meant to me. So I think that helped me to get a little bit more out of myself there. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I did push it um, and I was able to, to run with men in that one. I wouldn't say that I particularly had pacemakers. I was trying to think more about racing them, but I did run with the men. Um, and then women did have that for a while, but there was, I think there was a little bit almost of a disbelief for a little while that they could run those times. That, so they almost just didn't try and just concentrated on trying to win the races. And it's, yeah. it's a different mentality too. I think um, a lot of those girls decided, okay, let's go for a longer career trying to win more marathons rather than trying to run fast. Whereas I wanted to, I wanted to win marathons, but I wanted to try and run fast as well. So I kind of, you choose what you, you want to get out of the sport. Yeah. I mean, in fact, I, as you were speaking, I was just thinking there are a couple of videos, which when I go for any hard training run or uh, races, I mm -hmm. watch uh, one is those, uh, you know, the, the finishing miles of yours on, on that London world record run. And the other is Sam, Sammy Manjiro's uh, 2010 Chicago marathon, which, you know, which the finish was uh, between the two of them was mm -hmm. so close. So it was, it's so inspiring to watch both of, uh, both of these. So on the topic of uh, world records, now I have to ask you about your thoughts on these super shoes. Uh, let me put you on a spot and ask you whether do you think is it part of the natural evolution of everything related with sports and uh, you know surfaces and things like that or do you think these impart a very unfair advantage to people who do not have these shoes or have access to these shoes what are your um, i'm i'm kind of I'm, I'm relaxed about it i do think it's it's um, a, 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 an area of progression in the sport sure. it has it has always been there um, the shoes that I ran in were better than the shoes that Ingrid Christensen ran in. The shoes that okay. she ran in were better than the most shoes that Abibi Makila ran in. Um, so there has always been that improvement there. This has been a particularly big advancement, I think. And I think so long as people kind of retain that perspective that, yeah, okay, you can run faster in these shoes. Number one factor, I think, is you can recover better. I think that's yep. the biggest thing. And your legs aren't uh, as as dead in the closing stages of the marathon. They're not coping with the same levels of muscular fatigue um, and the oscillation fatigue that we used to be dealing with. So it's kind of changed the, the skill, if you like, of running the marathon in that it's different now. 
but at the same time it's good for runners health it keeps the records moving forward it keeps a healthy progression gives the youngsters something more to aim for also helps um athletes to to stay running longer um and by athletes i mean every type of runner so somebody who suffers with knees can run now with sore knees can run where they maybe couldn't before thanks to these shoes so i do think it's a good thing it's kind of supporting the all-round health it's not something that is any way detrimental to anyone's health um we just maybe do just need to uh, a little bit of a center perspective i guess when we look back over the records that it doesn't mean that those times that people ran in the 80s and 90s 2000s even are are nowhere near as good or on a different sheet they were just in a different era um and i think as long as we still celebrate them for that remember them for that and then celebrate the new performances now no, uh, i do it's, think it's good it's really refreshing to hear that because i mean obviously shoes are one part of uh, athletics but obviously there are improvements in other areas as well like as we discussed uh, the tracks are considerably mm-hmm. different over yeah. decades nutrition has changed the uh, uh changed a lot uh, in terms of what access mm-hmm. that uh, access that you have so yeah i mean it's it's wonderful to hear you give that perspective yeah i mean what i, I very well like... know some people are at the other yeah. extreme right who really think does. that these yeah, shoes I, are i do not find fair. that that's unfair um to to accuse young athletes or any athletes now wearing the shoes of of cheating in some way i think is extremely insulting and just no, wrong. No, absolutely. um absolutely. because cheating is is one thing that i absolutely don't support at all but most of the people saying this if they had their time again and someone gave me those shoes in 2003 i would absolutely put them on and run in them and see what i could do so i don't think there should be any criticism of of the athletes now for putting them on and running fast they still they're not rocket shoes they still have to go out there and train they just do help in certain areas particularly i think in keeping the um the turnover and the cadence going more strongly towards the end so the biggest impact is in the longer distance races the marathon and things like so with the challenge that Shalane Flanagan's doing at the moment when she's running the six marathons in six weeks i think it is yeah, yeah. um then um it's obvious there that there is a huge benefit in terms of recovery coming yeah. from the shoes okay and in all these races and all of that you have done all over the world and the records you have created are there any favorite races you want to share with us um i think yeah i mean i think i'm very fortunate there are lots of, of favorite races i mean that world cross country that i talked about in 1992 um will always be one of my favorites because it's the one that kind of i guess catapulted me into thinking and believing that i could make a, a professional career from sure. running and then to finally win the world senior title in 2001 in austin that was a very special moment for me because it had been a goal for 9 years and i'd had a couple of 18s 19s seconds thirds fourths but never ma- managed to win it until that point and it was at the time where in my mind i was ready to move on to the challenge of the marathon as well so i wanted to kind of complete the the cross country side of it and so to be able to do that that was important my first london was amazing the chicago marathon when i set the record there was very special obviously the 215 um and new york new york for me um was very much or became very much my my comeback city my feel good feel better um city um i went there after all of the disappointment and the heartache in athens and was able to get back to enjoying racing and winning again i went there after i'd had my daughter um and then again after to beijing as well so it it became a city that i think really 
embraces the marathon comes alive with the marathon i love running in central park it's one of my favorite places um so yeah i do think i've been very fortunate to be able to to run in lots of places all over the world um to run around new delhi and to to run around there and and to just kind of take in where you are i think it's it we're very fortunate and it's, it's a beautiful sport and it's given me the chance to meet lots of people Okay, wonderful. Uh, I want to switch topic and ask you, a, you know, a little bit of a personal question in the sense that last year was a bit tough for you. Your dad, who has been such a pillar of strength for you, passed away in April. Uh, and then your uh, elder child, uh, your daughter, Isla, got diagnosed with cancer. Uh, so how are you coping? How is the family coping? How is Isla doing now? Uh, what can you share with us she's doing really well i mean we were again extremely fortunate um that we live where we do that it was diagnosed very very quickly so from the point of going to see the pediatrician um it was on the tuesday by the following wednesday we were already diagnosed and starting chemotherapy oh. um and she responded very well to the chemotherapy in the middle of a pandemic it wasn't easy but they went out of their way to make sure that we were as supported as we could be um, to get through it. She had it all removed, um, the other ovary, so it was a tumour in a, a germ tumour in her ovary. Um, the other one seems to be functioning fine. Uh, she's had now a year of three-month checkups. All have been okay. So we get a little bit nervous around each one of those, but they'll continue um, for another three years. Um, but at the minute, she's recovering very well, concentration and fatigue, all of the things that we kind of don't really think about with children going through through chemotherapy have been hard, but she's coped with it extremely well. She's been very brave and she's getting through the schoolwork as well. And it, it's gradually, everything's moving in a positive direction. Um, and I think losing my dad before that obviously didn't help and, and was a tough time, but I try and be extremely grateful and remember the happy times that we did have with him, everything that he taught me. And I know, and that's one of the greatest skills. The best thing that he could do as a father was to, to teach me how to know what to do and to know that advice from him without him actually being here for it anymore. So I do know that. And if I need to imagine what his advice would be, it's all here inside. So that, that's a great gift um, from him. And I'm kind of convinced that he was looking out for us through everything that Isla went through as well uh, and helping us through that. So, um, yeah, we're just trying to now support the family as much as possible. My brother is in Australia. My, he hasn't been able to see my mom since we lost my dad. Um, so we're trying to put everything in place so that my mom can get out there, see her grandchildren there uh, and my brother. And we're actually going to go at Christmas to Kenya. And wow. I'm working with Shoe for Africa, who are building the first children's pediatric uh, cancer hospital. Um, in sub-Saharan Africa. There isn't actually one in the whole of sub-Saharan Africa. And the stats are shocking there. So where for Isla, it was a 9 out of 10 um, survival rate beating beating cancer. It's 1 out of 10 in, in Africa, which is, is for me heartbreaking. So um, we're going to go out there. We're going to take part in what we're calling the equator run. And we're going to run the 50 miles from the equator to Eldoret, where they're building the, the hospital. Um, and yeah, we're just going to do what we can to make sure that hopefully this won't be the first one, but it will be a 500 bed children's hospital. Okay. Um, so that's a large, large hospital. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's really, really wonderful, Paula, to hear that, uh, uh, you know, you are coping well, you as a family, I mean, and uh, wishing uh, Isla all the very best for continued 
continued progression. I really hope she's gotten back to the sports that because I have listened to uh, the, one of the podcasts in which both of you had talked mm-hmm. about and this was probably a few months back. Uh, so she was well on her way to the to recovery. So I hope she is able to continue with her sports, which she came across as loving very much. Uh, yeah. ho- hockey and a bit of running and, and swimming and what have you. So I hope it really progresses, continues to, uh, you know, progress uh, progress well so and you touched upon some of the things that uh, you are doing currently which was my next question really and we know that you are involved in in, in many athletic events like the london marathon uh, and uh, you know you are an ambassador um, in, uh, in in different ways to uh, various organizations and for, forums but what, where are you you know concentrating your energies uh, uh, these days other than the, the the hospital which you just talked about um, so um, I'm thankful that athletics events are starting back up again. I've been able to, yeah. to get back to, to commentating again, which is great. I think it's great for the athletes and it's great for us as fans to be able to, to watch those events again. Um, I'm working hard on my family's on-track events, um, which are a concept that we developed to, to basically get families physically active together and enjoying exercise, enjoying running as a family unit. So it's a 10 kilometer relay and we have 250 meter loops, 500 meter loops and 1K loops. And okay. the family completes 10K by completing different lengths of loops. You can mix it up however you want to. Um, and it's, it's just a lot of fun. We have people come in fancy dress. We have kids that have never run before, parents that haven't run for ages, and we'll just get involved again and hopefully then setting up healthy habits moving forward. So that's one thing that uh, I'm really passionate about doing. Um, I'm also a World Athletics and UN clean air advocate. Um, So just, again, trying to do what we can to encourage people to, to get outside and to be physically active but to do so in a way that's good for your health too so we're not encouraging people to get out and run in polluted air to try and choose the best times of day to give them the information to to make those choices Um, so we've got stadium monitors around the world monitoring air quality um, and um, runners can just go on to the app and just see what is the best time of day the safest time to exercise and then also order our own little bit so to kind of protect the, the climate and to do a bit for that. So, yeah, kind of a mix of, of different things. Also trying to get children to, to eat healthily and children more active, I think, across the board. Um, it's one of the things that concerns me a lot about the pandemic is that suddenly physical activity stopped for, for a lot of children. There wasn't that activity to and from school, in school, in sports clubs. It wasn't able to do to happen. And... Children are not used to that. Adults might stop doing sport for a while and then get back into it. It hurts for a bit and they get fitter and and then they start to enjoy it again. But children usually have a constant level of fitness. So to actually stop, my fear is that a lot of kids will never then go back to sport and physical activity. So we're trying to to work with different initiatives as much as possible to, to get them back into health and fitness. Okay. Now, it seems like you have uh, quite a lot on your uh, quite a lot on your uh, plate. So thanks, <laughs> thanks for thanks for sharing uh, thanks for sharing uh, sharing that. Uh, last couple of questions. Uh, one is a little bit open ended in the sense: uh, What is the one character or trait that you think has been very instrumental in your uh, in your success? Uh, um, 
um, gosh, I'm trying to think of what is, is a trait. I mean, I think a mantra that has, has really helped me is, is something that my, my grandma, who I was very, very close to, um, probably instilled in me. And it was basically like, you, you've only got one life, make the most of it, have fun doing it, but just make sure that you treat everybody else in, in and the world around you in a fair way. So basically okay. play by the rules, respect the world, respect other people, but just give it your best shot. That's all you can do. And make sure you enjoy every minute of it because we do only, only have one. So yeah, she used, basically used to say, don't, if you think you've behaved in a way that you wouldn't like someone to behave towards you in, then don't do it. Um, so yeah, I think that's kind of a, a good a good rule of thumb to just to enjoy life and give it your best shot and treat people fairly. Okay, wonderful. That's really uh, really good to hear. And uh, what's the best way for uh, listeners to follow you in terms of where do you put, I mean, where in the social media do you put out ah. activities, or are you not really a social? I, media? I do, but I don't live on social media, so um, sure. I do have Instagram. And I do have Twitter, so it's at Paula J. Radcliffe on Twitter and Paula underscore Radcliffe on Instagram. Um, I'm not the best in terms of, of posting lots and lots and lots. I, I post when I think it's important to. Sometimes I share things from my family. Sometimes I keep those private. Um, yeah, and sometimes I'll go, if I'm busy and I'm doing something else, I'll go a while without posting. And then other times I will share things. But yeah, I do try and respond as much as possible. And I think it's also one of the things that I do try and pass on to particularly to young girls, but to youngsters across the board at the minute is kind of the dangers and the perils of social media as well, making sure that people understand that it can be a vicious and mean and cruel world sometimes out there and to, to remember that it's not actually real. Those people would never say that to your face. Um, so to kind of keep that sense of, of perspective there in terms of managing social media, particularly I think for, for young athletes, but for youngsters, uh, across the board. More generally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in fact, there is increasing amount of both uh, both research and anecdotal evidence coming as to the harmful effects of these mm -hmm. social media platforms on on teen on teen children and young children in in in, uh, in particular. So, uh, and not that you know, I find some athletes, some adults are no better either. But uh, <laughs> certainly for children and a lot of it, you know, they are not even able to probably process right mm -hmm. because they are so yeah. so young and they start feeling miserable. So that's 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 a very very you know, fair, uh, fair uh, observation that you have made. So before we wind up, uh, Paula, any final thoughts for the for the listeners? Um, no, just just thank you for listening. Um, enjoy. I guess a lot of you are runners. So yeah, enjoy your running. Um, have fun with it. Okay. Thank you so much for taking the time. As I said in the beginning, this thank was... Uh, this was and is one of our most sought after inter interviews. A lot of listeners had, you know, asked me to, uh, you know, get in touch with you. And uh, frankly, I really didn't really know how to go about it. But thankfully, Dr. Ashish was on the same platform and he had been on the podcast uh, earlier this year. So I requested him if he could do an introduction. So I'm very thankful for him and a shout out to Dr. Ashish as well. So okay. thank you, Paula. Thank so you. I know thank you have you, a very Ashish. busy Wednesday. So thank you for taking the time. Really, no really appreciate it. Thank you. Time. Okay, great. Thank you. Take care. Thank you very much to all the listeners. Please check out the podcast website, runfitraj.com. That is R-U-N-F-I-T-R-A-J.com. It has all the podcasts. It has all the show notes. And there is a very useful search function as well. You can reach out to me on my social media handles, which are running and fitness with Raj on both Instagram and Facebook. 
and you can also email me on running and fitness with raj at gmail.com please let me know if you have any questions or specific guests you would like to see on the show i also request you all again to please subscribe to the podcast and spread the word please also leave a review on itunes as it will help enormously to grow the show we will continue to bring you exciting and interesting guests and give specific and actionable advice stay safe stay healthy until the next show goodbye